OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to the Supporters Fund, Ask an Angel. I'm your host, Jeffrey Pogman. And today we want to welcome with open arms and super excited, Mark Dillon. Thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure. Awesome. Well, the way we like to kick it off and jump right into things, Mark, is if you could share a little bit about yourself, your background, the startups you've been with, the companies you've sure. built, all these great things that you've done up to today, and then one thing about you that nobody would know. Sure. Uh, quick background myself, grew up in Ottawa with a family of engineers. Uh, I guess something not really many people know about me is I'm a skateboarder. Uh, so I've been skateboarding since the age of 10. I still skate to this day. So it's very interesting. I worked on Bay Street skating into office, but that's all other than the story. I uh, did a couple of degrees in engineering, realized it wasn't really for me. So I did an MBA and that's how I fell into the whole tech startup world. Uh, started my own apparel e-commerce brand. Um, and then after that, joined kind of like an early stage startup that raised a series A. And then really much after that, I joined the DC arm of Canopy Growth. Uh, so I was a director there. And now more recently, within the past year, I went to go to start my own co company uh, that's still in stealth, but we'll discuss more information soon. Very cool. And with this brand company that you created, how did that start and what got you interested in creating your own your own business? Uh, it was like skateboarding is very entrepreneurial in general. Everyone starts their own like skateboard brands, their own T-shirts. And a couple of my friends and myself, we went to uh, Thailand for basically like a winter escape. And we started buying all the fake Ray-Bans and bringing it back to our friends because they couldn't afford the actual Ray-Bans. So from there, they're just like, why don't we just start our own sunglasses company? Uh, why don't we just go on Alibaba, source some different samples, kind of make some simple designs and then sell it to our friends. Like basically like kind of almost knockoffs of Ray-Bans to be honest, but we had our own branding and sell the skate shops. Uh, so that was the initial idea about five and a half years ago. And we ran it for over that time. And we had, you know, national distribution. It, it basically gave me the foundation of like the knowledge to operate a business and manage a PL. Awesome. And, and I think those things are always super helpful. And then you've been in uh, working with incubators and other group venture groups. So it seems like at the same time, while you were building your own business, you were heavily involved in the startup community as well. Yeah, for sure. It's always something that's attracted me. I think the, again, going back to skateboarding as my base, it was those attracted to the big thinkers, the ones who weren't like really afraid to fail. And I found that same culture in tech. And that's why I really gravitated towards it. And that's why I've kind of been in the middle of it for the past six or seven years. Um, it's just like all my friends work in tech. Uh, it's something I really love to kind of read about, like, you know, on like my, my spare time. And in general too, it's just like you work on really complicated ideas, with really smart people. So it's always exciting. No, that is. And then you, as you mentioned before, that you went into um, Canopy and Canopy Rivers and a, a few others, the farm lead. What kind of drew you in? It sounds like as you were kind of building through, you've got all this great educational background. You started to run in, you did your own business side, started to run in and to go into other big businesses. What kind of learning did you gain from those more scalable companies that you're able to kind of relate back to this early stage community? I think in general, what I wanted was the most amount of experience as possible and joining farm lead at the seed stage and helping them scale, you know, go from like eight employees to 60 was an experience that I really wanted. And I was also kind of working in a generalist kind of position. So it was even better for myself. Uh, so those two years were foundational for everything that I've done since then. And then really jumping on the venture capital side, 
I just wanted to get more experience on the capital markets instead of the other side of the table. It's like, how does it look like, you know, from an ex like, you know, tech executive kind of sitting in a table with VCs, how do they view the world? How do they view the ecosystem? Um, so getting that kind of really rounded out, like, I think perspective early on in my career was really important to me. And then I took that to go start a company. Uh, so that was kind of like the long-term goal is to start a company eventually. And I just wanted to see as much as I could before then. Amazing. And, and I like that when you were just talking about that, you were wanted to see it through the other eyes, the other lens that's out there. And I kind of want to explore that because I don't think a lot of people take that risk or really understand what it takes to learn what another business is going through. So you mentioned scaling, then you mentioned the VC venture side. There's a lot to both of those businesses and there's a lot to unpackage. So maybe you can talk about that scaling side, which is what did you learn while you were working on a scaling company? Because at the time you had built your own company. So maybe you weren't scaling so much on that side. And then you jump into a fast growing company and all of a sudden you're a generalist and you're scaling. What does that mean? I think in general, it's just like you're throwing yourself into the deep end. And it's just, you, you have to do so much in a short amount of time and there's a lot of expectations there. So I think it just really humbled me from like a really kind of young perspective, like a young part of my career. Uh, But what it does too, at the same time, it's like, it's the best amount of learning. It's like learning times five in most careers. And that's what really excited me about the early stage scaling. But like most people, it's like, no, it's extremely hard. Uh, it's extremely hard to go from that pre-seed to seed to series A. And then once you hit series B, you really have those metrics. You have like, you know, that product market fit. Then you have the engine and then you kind of figure it out from there. But really getting to that point where like you have product market fit, it's probably one of the hardest things to this day that I've ever done in my career. And I'm consistently trying to achieve that on a daily basis. So maybe in exploring that scaling side of things, and like you said, going through each one of those stages is pretty detrimental to a company. Can you share a little bit of the hard learnings that you had to take? And I'm sure we can all say it was 20 hour days, but that's probably the hard working side of it. But mentally, what was the business going through and how did you see that shift? Because really a lot of companies that uh, we, we work with and we all work with in this ecosystem are really early on and they're trying to figure out, am I scalable? What does scaling mean to me? Like uh, I've got a million dollars in revenue. Am I scaling? So how do you kind of, associate each of those stages and what does that mean for a company that is scaling? I think like at the very beginning, you're just trying to find like your power users who really are your ambassadors. And then from there, really when you get those, it's like, okay, can I scale this? Can I move it to the next level? And like, where are the gaps in our roadmap and gaps in our value prop that we need to kind of like really consolidate our efforts towards to get to the next stage. But identifying that is really, really hard. And at the same time, you also have to get a little bit lucky because timing plays a lot into a lot of this. So I think really it's like, I think a lot of startups, when they raise money, they're on this proverbial treadmill and they're running really fast towards these like revenue targets and it sucks. And it's also like, I, you know, you you get it because once you take money, that's kind of like part of the deal. Uh, But at the same time, you also don't want to be stewing too far into like, we need to make more money where in reality, maybe we should take two months, re kind of build the product and kind of readjust ourselves and reposition ourselves in the market. And I think it's a, kind of like that two kind of parts to jumping on the treadmill and making sure that like, you're making the right decisions. Uh, but I find that most early stage jobs are working really hard, but not working smart sometimes. So if I kind of unpackage that, is this in that stage that you came in, is that commercializing what you're trying to offer? And 
what means is that you're kind of cookie cuttering it. So you're figuring out how do we get to packaging this up really tightly. So right now we're at the top of the funnel. Things are pretty open. Everything's hitting us. We haven't really defined our strategies, our logics, how we want to do all of this. And we really need to tighten that up so that we can get to a point where it's cookie cutter. We've got the sales team that just understands, you know, in and out, this is all we're doing. Ones and zeros, yeah. one in exactly. sale on yeah. by. Is that kind of how you're looking at this? It, it's kind of moving towards where like, say you're like an early stage enterprise SaaS company and you got one contract or you got two contracts and you have about, you know, say two, like $250,000 of ARR in the door. That doesn't necessarily mean you have product market fit. It just means that two big customers really like what you do. But I think really what it is, is like, you have to have the repeatable sales process, like you said, but you have to find it. But it, you only really hit that is once you have product market fit, where like, it's just selling the same story, selling for the most part over and over again. I've seen other startups that kind of like become almost dev shops to a certain extent, and they keep tailoring the product around different customers. But I think it's like you said, once you start hitting that kind of conformity in terms of like a sales process, you can start repeating it very quickly, start creating that engine. So I think it's getting to that point and getting to that point is, like I said, extremely hard. And who's determining this? Is this all done by the founder? Is this their team? Because you mentioned that you took eight people and made them 60. Does that mean you're scaling because you went from eight to 60? Or does that just mean that you've created so much opportunity inside the business that you need more brains running on this? Or is it, you know what, we really, in, the, in order for us to scale, the more bodies that are going to bring into this business means that we're able to adapt, compress, build this funnel out and really be articulate on where that story is going and how we're going to move it forward. But is that all founder driven? Is that executive team driven? What's making this happen? It's KPI driven. At the end of the day, it's like you have to hit certain KPIs. You set your OKRs for the quarter. Okay, here are the numbers we need to hit. For us to hit these numbers, you kind of have to work backwards. It's like, okay, this is the roadmap. The roadmap's going to need X amount of resourcing. So we're going to need X amount of like basically like, you know, developers, this is individuals and we need X amount of people selling. So you create your revenue to like headcount ratio. So really at the end of the day, what you do is you set targets and then you look at your roadmap and then basically like understand exactly the resourcing, put together that strategy and you hire for that scale. Um, but you're also betting that your product at that point has a repeatable sales process. I've seen the other time too, where you're on the treadmill, you raise like $5 million, you bring a bunch of capital and you're hiring like crazy. But in reality, you really haven't hit that point where you really need that many people. And uh, one of the companies that I love, Notion. So Ivan Zhao, I don't know if anyone's ever used Notion, but if you, if you haven't, you should. Um, Notion's an amazing all-in-one workspace, but the founder really kind of had this like philosophy of only hiring when you need it and only hiring when you start seeing those results versus a lot of startups raise really fast because they have that network and they have the ability to sell that narrative, but it also gives a kind of a negative signal um, that kind of confuses founders. They're like, oh, I raised all this money. That means I'm, I'm successful. That means my company's doing well. But really, it's only a resource for the potential opportunity you're going to create for yourself long term. I love it. I'm hitting the red green button right now. I use both because <laughs> I, I don't know which one's the best one to hit at this stage. But it's the stage is lighting up like the sunbeam that's coming through right now and hit me in the face. It's uh, it's that button. It's hitting. But so now you're taking the scaling side and, and the founder, like you said, they're only hiring when they need to, which I think is brilliant. And it yeah. is the way I, I try to push this with all companies to realize just because you have money doesn't mean you got to go spend it. What it means is that you got to be strategic enough to unpackage your business and then figure out what's the best next steps to package it all back up nice and tightly. And then only when you need that resource to come in because you're overwrought with work or opportunity that that person's going to alleviate you so that you can go on to that next stage. So what kind of drives this out? Like 
Uh, I keep going back to this founder's got eight people on the team. You've come on board. They've raised some cash. And now you're saying, hold on, let's put the brakes on here. Let's unpackage all of this. Let's figure out what the real opportunity is here. And let's start scaling this. But we don't need the people to scale it. We need revenues. We need KPIs. And- exactly. And, and I think it's it really depends on the business and how the, like the business is viewed from the founder's perspective. If really, like, I think when capital markets got involved in the tech community and whatever, and maybe even the 1950s or 60s when venture capital started, really it became this path to IPO, path to liquidity. So literally it's like, oh, you don't need revenue. Don't worry, you can just go public and you're fine and we'll figure it out later. Uh, but I think that mentality is kind of switching at this point, especially what's happened in the past 12, 12 to 24 months um, is a lot of founders are starting to move towards that profitability standpoint. It's like, how can we get profitable? If we need to get profitable, can we become profitable and still sustain like, you know, all the old harvest that we currently have? Uh, but I think, it's what I've seen in the past is the previous versus like shotgun, 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 raise money. We'll raise more money. Don't worry. We'll raise more money. We'll raise more money and burn it as fast as possible. Where I think there's this traditional like kind of thought process where it's like first, to, it's first to be there versus first to being right. And I think it's like a lot of founders, founders are just trying to be there first. They want to be the first company in that space because they think they have an advantage. But I think it's really taking a step back and first to being right. And if you're selling, and your revenue is growing and your user base is growing, even though you don't have as many people, it doesn't really matter because you're on the right path to a certain extent. Then you can figure out when to turn on, like basically like pour the gasoline on and light a fire. So that commercialization component is really, really, really strategic and, and needed so that you can figure out when you're unpackaging it and taking that pause, like you said, and, and you have this dollars, is that how can I build to this plan that says in three years, We'll be doing 10 times the revenue, but we're also going to have 10 times the employees. How do we manage all of this? So how do we actually get there? And sometimes it's slowing it down to speed it up. So process, process, throw gasoline on the fire. Now it takes off because you can throw gasoline on the fire because now you've got a really adjusted strategy that's allowing you to expand at the right times. Yeah, and I think... Don't get me wrong. There are startups who've succeeded in the other way, where they just shotgun through cash and it eventually just took out the market. But I think those those stories are overglorified. They're the outliers of like the reality of startup world. If you really focus on fundamentals, where you're focusing on bottom line revenue, you're focusing on margins, you're focusing on user growth, and I think you know it's said over and over again. You won't have to go raise money as often as possible. And in case it gives you more time back to your business, which is really important, it is the most important time. I think time is everything. So do you, do you think when that momentum side kicks in, um, and let's just say you were able to close around in the first three months because yeah. you've got strong momentum and you've unpackaged things, you've got a good strategy, you've got a good base team, like the eight people you mentioned, do you just keep scaling? Do you just keep trying to bring in as much cash as you can, close, more cash, close, and then figure out the details along the way? Or, or do you think that that's a good way to fail and, and it's uh, people are tired of failing and that's why they're trying to look at this process differently? I think it's like to each their own. Personally, I, I really at the bottom end of the day, it's looking at revenue. And it's like, I'm not going to go raise money until I know we're on the right path. And I think really at the beginning of it, um, again, I'm, with a lot of early stage founders, they're able to raise literally before they leave the job. And they have all this cash and they're experimenting with it, but it's always best when you can kind of struggle a bit and really figure out what you need to do. Uh, but I think really it's cash is only there for you to 
it's like a, basically a catalyzer for you to get the next stage. And you have to set those stages and set those examples and set the basically the benchmarks you need to meet. And when you're close to it, then you go raise money. Uh, but like same time too, it's like Notion's a perfect example. Uh, wonderful story. They raised, I think, $1.1 million initially. Um, literally used that. I think they had to pivot. Uh, the two founders moved to, I think, Osaka, Japan, basically worked in their underwear for a year, redesigned the whole product. Uh, I think one of the founders took like $100,000 kind of, I think, line of credit from like one of their parents and they pivoted the business and they just built it back on fundamentals. And then I think up until this point, they were profitable. And I think during COVID, just to give themselves another 10 years running, they raised $50 million at a three, $2 billion valuation. And they basically skipped venture capital. I think a lot of founders, a lot of angel investors who are in that round, they're like, they skipped venture capital for the most part. And they're like a huge company. Amazing. Yeah, those are, that's one of the stories that uh, we all want to be part of, or at least want to hear about, because it sounds pretty exciting. Yeah. So if you, if you take that initial team that you talked about, can you describe who you would think you need to have on that team to help you with this 8 to 60? What, are the, what is the type of roles or what are the type of people you think really kind of meet the needs? And it doesn't matter if it's SaaS or CPG or deep tech. Is there a couple of key people that you think really will help you better understand and, and position that CEO and that company for that next stage? I think at the end of the day, like it, it, again, it's subjective to the actual company, the stage, and you know the vertical they're going after. But the three core pillars, it's like, how much money do I have left? How much money am I making? Who's building the product and who's selling it? So you just need to fill that. <laughs> That's it in general. And then Usually I would say you have one smart generalist who's running across the board that can jump in from department to department, but like you're just building and selling and trying to get to that. Wow. Okay. It seems like we have a lot of customers that people, this is becoming really easy to sell. Okay. Let's go build it a bigger team. I love it. And when does the end, is this a key role in this scaling side? Uh, is it a part-time CFO, part-time CTO, full-time CTO, full-time CFO? Like is, are those roles something you want to fill? Uh, or those are still later down the line and you really got to make sure you've got that strategist marketing, marketing sales, all of those roles filled and, and running at full steam. I think part-time CFO is fine or controller or whatever it may be. Just someone to make sure that they handle the books, people get paid. That's all that matters. Um, on the CTO side, depends what business you're building. If you're building an e-commerce business where you can use Shopify, probably not so much. But if you're building a traditional tech company, you want you at least want someone who has who's leading the technical build and has skin in the game. So I always kind of recommend like a technical co-founder um, at that point, or if you're technical, great, you can build it yourself. And then you need someone to sell. Um, I think it's like someone selling is really important. Someone focused on the product is full-time always all the time. I love that you said that, um, and that's all great advice, of course, and it's huge. I love that you said that having a generalist that can bounce in and out of each kind of grouping. Uh, I'm not sure I've seen this role yet. So how do you find this? Is this a consultant that you can bring in? Uh, because I think a lot of these companies that get to this seed stage, they kind of wean between how they get to that series A and they kind of, they think they've got some market fit, which in your term, maybe they're not really at market fit yet for another raise, but they're still trying to unpackage it and figure it out. So where do you kind of get this person that has a generalist idea of how tech and supply chain and operations is it a consultant you bring in to work with you? Because I think this is kind of crucial for you to get to that next level. It, it depends on the individual. I mean, in generalist depends on like how you see the generalist. Maybe like someone who's really good at design, someone who's really good at engineering. So that could be a former generalist, but there's different permutations of it. But I think in, 
if you're looking for a high level profile and a position, it's mostly like chief of staff, head of special projects. And most likely it's like the traditional kind of like background. I think most companies look at it. It's like, do you have a consulting background? Do you understand some type of like, you know, you know, some product roadmap, something like technology wise, and will you work hard and do you want to learn a lot? And that's it. Usually I see a lot of like existential consultants who really want to jump in the very bottom of a startup and they go from end to end in every part of the business. And it's just up to them to execute on these projects. But um, don't think there's any traditional profile. They're really hard to find the good ones. Uh, but if you can get one, it's great. I like it. And now you kind of take and slice this up and you've really kind of helped this company scale in the case of the one you're talking about from eight to 60 people. That's obviously awesome, super success. Then you've kind of shifted into these venture firms and helping with tech stars and coaching and mentoring. So now yeah. you've got to take in this experience that you've gained over that 10 years. And you said, yeah, I'm going to use this in a bigger way. And I'm going to start working with more startups. You start expanding out that knowledge. What can you share that you've gained in doing that transition? Because you went from being in the thick of things, you went from being an engineer to then uh, working at high level execs inside of scaling businesses. And then you've kind of gone into that really early stage again, back into that building from the ground up. How much new learning have you kind of shifted into that space? And where did that leave you with? What kind of mindset does that put you in now that you've kind of hit like three streams of, of business building? Uh, it's just humility. I think one thing is just like from both sides, understanding both sides a little better in terms of like what they're looking for, how they see the world. So uh, my communication skills at both sides are, are much more effective at this point. Um, I think also taking the best fundamentals of both sides too. It's like having the visionary entrepreneur who wants to build really big, but also the investors who see the fundamentals of like, these are probably core pillars you should focus on. Uh, so I think being able to have, um, you know, intelligent conversation across the board to investors and entrepreneurs and operators has been super helpful. But I think the transition over to the, you know, mentoring a tech stars, working in a venture capital firm, things like that, it was more, uh, serendipitous in nature uh, for one point. It was just kind of sort of happened. I uh, wasn't really looking for it. But I think at the end of the day, I was really curious how investors see the world and who they need to raise money from and how angel investors think. And uh, I just wanted to understand everything to like about 80% kind of like percentile and then go jump back into like areas that I really love, but bring that perspective with me. So what did you net out? What were the five things that you learned that really stuck, like really made an impact in kind of where you are today from the venture side of how they think? Uh, I think that really at the end of the day is venture capital firms too sometimes are, they, they want to be helpful, but sometimes they're helpful in the wrong ways. You really want like the, 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 the least amount of distractions to the founders you invest in. Uh, that's one part. Uh, this is really give them value, like async. I think the most of the time, don't jump on calls too often. Um, I think on the other side too is, um, really be there to kind of help the founders and, and basically like through hard times, like you're going to, you're investing into this relationship and the relationship sometimes not going to go really well. So you really want to be there for them to be kind of like that open space where they can talk. Uh, because I find too, too many times to investors, uh, they don't have that conversational relationship with the founders and the founders don't really want to tell them actually what's going on sometimes because it's hard to tell them that things aren't working. But if you're an investor that understands, it's like, I've been there, it's okay, just tell me what's wrong and let me see how I can help you. It builds a wonderful kind of relationship there. And then on the other side too, like, yeah, like venture capitals also raise money from their investors. So they go to family offices, they go to different people. So they have to do the same thing as you. So they typically understand it in a way kind of position it to do entrepreneurs is, 
associates and analysts are kind of like SDRs. They go out there and source and try to sell. Um, and at the same time, it's like the managing directors are like the founders. They need to go to these other kind of like, you know, funds of funds and pitch to them like, this is why we're going to make you money. So um, there's a lot of synergies I learned, but in general, those are kind of like the three things that really kind of pop out. No, I love that. And when you were working with the founders, obviously you came in from wearing multiple hats, which I think is phenomenal. And it really does make an impact to that founder. Um, what did you find allowed you to relate the most? Was it uh, obviously you learned the humility side, as you mentioned, but it was it the fact that you really could have them trust you because you've done this, you've been there. So they felt more open to communicate with you versus maybe, maybe a lot of the VCs don't tend to have that side of it. Uh, they're spending their time raising funds and doing all the businessy yeah. things we'll call it. So did that kind of shift you into that more of a comfort position that allowed you to then bring in that business knowledge and share it easier? Yeah, for sure. And actually my position at the venture capital was actually working with the founders primarily. Um, and I think really why that was, is I've been through those ups and downs and I've been through those tough situations may not be exactly in that vertical, but I understand generally what you're going through. Um, and I think that is why um, in general, like that's been kind of like my kind of piece where I can really relate to founders because I've been through it. Um, but I can also kind of communicate the things they still need to, to be aware of on the investment side. So yeah, for sure. It's just like, you can build better relationships, but I think at the end of the day, it's like, you've been in their shoes. Like it's easy to have a conversation about it. If you haven't, it's like, it's much harder. And you can tell a, a good story, right? You can help them feel comfortable by just sharing a story of, uh, like you said, when you were, uh, you and your buddies started to sell and, and buy products and have that secondary Ray brand business that got other people excited because now they're sitting there listening going, Hey, I'm doing something kind of similar or I'm on this angle. So you can really shift that whole mentality over into um, making, making them feel comfortable on sharing problems or what they've gone through so that you can help tackle them before they get to the wrong stage of, of the business, which is failing. Yeah. That's like one of the things I look for too, is uh, even in angel investments, like, do I understand do I understand the problem they're trying to solve, how they're trying to solve it? And do I probably, I can probably predict the problems they're going to run into and can I help them with those problems? Um, and I think those are the things I look at it, as an angel investor is like, if those four checkboxes are there, I'll probably invest if I like the team. Um, but that's the same way I look at it. It's like, generally, like I understand what you're building, what you're solving for, and I probably understand the problems you're going to go through. So let me just exterior away because I spent a lot of time wasting a lot of money doing that. So try not to do it. And I can give you the coals notes and you can make a decision after that. Well, it's interesting you say that because from that investment standpoint, now you kind of shift into this newer hat, which is uh, angel investing or putting your own dollars in to, this, um, to these early stage companies. Now you've built out this real KPI list that uh, over the decade of learning and building this, you're like, hey, wait a second. If I'm going to do this, these things have to be met. There has to be these 5, 10, 20 things that, that do get met. I can now speak to these founders. I can really get into their head. They trust me. They, I've learned this. I've done this. So now you kind of shift into that space. How much different is a VC world from an angel uh, world perspective? Oh, totally different. It's like not even close to being the same. Uh, I think at the end of the day, it's much more, you know, we're talking to an angel. The angel's not going to, like, I'm not writing, like a person, I'm not writing $100,000, $200,000 checks. So I'm, I'm just like a little person on the map. But really where it's like in the day, it's like, this is how I can help you. And this is how I believe in you. And I only like, typically invest pre-seed to seed. Um, and really I invest at that level because it's, I find it's much easier just to find diamonds in the rough of just really good people working to solve 
really hard problems. And I really don't care what your solution is. It's like, are you really smart? You're really passionate. Can I help you? Is one of the biggest things too at the same time. And at the end of the day, will you give up on your, do you have the ability to listen? And then all that combined, it's like, they're just really passionate people who just put money into them. And it's just like, it's a gamble. But if you bet them correctly, I think in terms of like, okay, how do you see the world here? See the world here. Um, sometimes you can invest in companies and they can do wonderful things for the world. And I think as an angel investor, um, I'm really not doing this to make returns on my money. To be honest, I'm just trying to put my money and just like give back to the community in different ways and be like, how can I help you? Because if they create a solution that solves that problem, they could potentially solve a big problem in the world and help a lot of people. Uh, very well said. I love that. And, and it kind of goes back to the original story you talked about with the guys that moved to Japan. They pivoted and they changed and they had to rebuild their business, but you were investing in them. You were investing in those people that were going to have that passion, that were going to take the time to figure it out. And if they didn't, they were going to change it around, get new loans, do whatever they needed to, to survive and grow. But they were going to take their time to really be uh, accurate on how they're going to attack that market. And, and they obviously did it and they're yeah. doing a great job at it. Yeah. I, well, also, I, I didn't invest in Notion. It was just an example. I wish I invested in Notion. But I think it's that scrappiness. It's just like, holy shit, they did whatever they could to get there. I think it was Airbnb that did like the Bama-O's. They were selling boxes of cereal to grind to get to the next level. It's like, if they're willing to do that, they're probably willing to do a lot more to get where they need to and they're going to figure it out. Well, and I, I like that the approach of having, and you said this earlier, which was, it's got to get tough. If it doesn't get tough, you don't pivot, you don't learn, you don't make those changes. If you've got too much money or too much of everything, you tend to forget that there's a hard spot. You might not hit the hard spot at the right time. And then it can obviously potentially go in the wrong direction. So having that, and, and this is what I love about angel investing or early stage investing is that as you're working with those companies, you know, they can be sitting there, opened up, getting all these cash come in, they're working away, their sales are kind of doing okay, they don't really have market fit, but they haven't had any struggles yet. So they haven't really hit the wall where they need to really go deep into their thinking to say, hey, am I doing this right? Do I got the right process? Am I selling to the right people? So I think some of that punch that you get as you're working through really does help you mature as a business and as a founder. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's a like we, we raised like our, I, I can't say too much what we're building right now, but I will in a bit, but essentially like we raised money and we were going to raise a bigger round, but then really me and my co-founder took a step back. It's like, do we really know where this is going to go in the next two or three years? Cause we could sell, but like at the end of the day, it's like, do we really know? And we're like, no, we don't. So we raised less money. And then it re recently, probably three months ago, we really pivoted and now it's really working. But if we raised all that money, we would have all that luxury. I'm like, Oh, we can throw money at this, throw money at this. Uh, we made a conscious decision to raise less money to put us ourselves into that kind of pressure. It's like, if we don't figure it out, we won't be able to get out of this. And I'm super thankful we did that. And also a lot of our investors also told us the same. We're like, don't raise venture capital right now. We'll give you money, figure it out first, and then go raise venture capital. And we're super thankful for that advice because it worked today. Awesome. No, I agree with that. That's a, a great approach to, uh, to any investor. It's, or sorry, to any startup is, you know, don't go for the whole kit and caboodle right away do it in stages and learn because you're going to pivot or you're going to shift because you need to learn more about what your customer's looking for. And if you're going to do it on big dollars, then you won't shift as fast and you'll work another day and hopefully maybe make the shift next week. And I think you got to have something that just puts the pressure on you to keep working hard. Yeah. And I think the, again, 
if you can build a business and not raise money, uh, just do it. <laughs> it's a, it's counterintuitive to like, you know, the space that I work in and also invested in. But I, I think if, if you ask every founder, it's like, imagine like you could build the same business you had, but you never had to raise a dollar. They would never raise a dollar ever. They only do it because there's this potential fear sometimes of I need 20 more people or I need to be there first. Or if I don't raise money, I'm not as cool as everyone else. Um, there's a lot of these weird kind of like, like Silicon Valley ethos that it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but you look at the fundamentals of every great business, it's just like it's built on money, making money and making customers really, really happy and making sure employees are really, really happy. Um, and that's it. Yeah, that's that's great. And there is a lot of happiness that needs to happen in that side of it or it's not going to work forward. So, yeah, well, well shared. So now taking this whole journey you've been on, which is pretty exciting, you've scaled businesses, you're working for VCs, you're working as an angel investor. Now you're going to go and start your own new business again. After all these years, you're going to go back at the grind or you've already started the grind. So you're back into it. What did you do differently this time than the first time? Um, I think really made sure that I could sell before I built. Um, I think before it was kind of building something and trying to sell it. Uh, we started our company literally, I was selling a notion template for like $2,000 a month. That was it. It was like, I'll build you a web client if you need it. And it's like, let me see if I can sell it. And I think selling before you build is really key because then, you know, there's a real pain point. If they're willing to like, you know what, we'll wait a month and a half, two months for this to come out and we'll pay for it then. Uh, maybe once you have something. So I think that was one of the biggest rules that kind of set for ourselves where we will not start building. And it frustrated my, like my co-founder because he's a developer. It's like, I just want to code. It's like, no, no, we're just going to mock it up and we're going to see if we can sell this. And I think that's probably the biggest thing I'm picking so far. And also at the same time, don't raise money too fast, get down the fundamentals, run really lean um, and really understand what you're building and really have that site where like literally intuitively when you're speaking to someone, it just comes out very naturally. Um, so those are the things I found out about and I'm still learning every single day. Um, so uh, we'll see what the lessons are in a couple of weeks. Uh, that's awesome. And those are great, great, great segues into many, many more conversations for sure. But those three points, I think, really do uh, make a big difference to a founder in hearing that. Uh, because I will say that if I was to pull statistics off of all the startups I've ever talked to, I would say 90% of them are builders right from the get go. And they don't tend to really get market fit because they think they're solving a problem, which they don't realize that a lot of the time they're solving their own problem, which may not always be everybody else's. So they don't get that early on traction. And I think from the way you shared that is go out and try and sell this before you actually have a device or a product or whatever you have in hand and see if someone's willing to wait for it and take it. I think that's massive because it really will get more people involved, more people excited about it. And they will wait the time if they're really that interested in you solving the problem. And it gives you the, like, I think one of my friends told me this a long time ago. It's like, whatever problem you start with will never be the problem that you actually build a company with ever. Literally, you're going to go through like a year to a year and a half of just pivots. And if you're lucky, you can get there earlier, but most likely you're just going to be pivoting. And the only way to really understand where you should pivot towards is really by talking to customers and trying to sell to them. And then like, okay, I don't want to buy it. I'm like, okay, why don't you want to buy it? It's like, here, here's my actual pain point. And then you find a new pain point. You're like, oh, interesting. We could just kind of move towards that direction. And then you start seeing a pattern. You're like, I wonder how many poor people have this kind of problem. And you tap into the same people, like who over your colleagues have that problem. And then you see a widespread pattern. Then you start building because you've sold something already. 
Amazing. So I'm going to take these three bullet points that uh, you've gained and learned access to and got all this great stuff along the way and you've come up with these three valuable points. Do you think this is going to be the best company you've built because you've got these learnings? And do you think that this is the one that you can really, man, I've got so much goodness here that I can just kind of shift and change and I, I'm going to see it before it happens. Do you feel that you've really got that, that edge now after uh, all these years? I, I think so. I, I think at the end of the day, too, what it really is, my, me and my, my co-founder have been working together for five years. Uh, we've been friends for that long, so we really know each other well. And we're really in this like amazing ability to pivot and understand exactly what's wrong. Like We like being wrong because if we're wrong, most of the time we're learning actually a lot faster. And as we learn faster, we'll become more and more right. And I think we've just really kind of taken a step back. We're like, we could be completely wrong. Let's go test it a lot, a lot faster. And I think Really, we've built our team very lean on purpose, but we're building at the pace of a team of 10. Uh, we've been talking to a lot of big partners, a lot of big companies, and they're just like, how many people are you? They're like, we're four. And they're like, we thought you were like 10 to 15. Or like, yeah, because we optimize every aspect of it. Really where now it's more kind of like same time, one of the biggest things is like, just be ready to learn anything, but sometimes you're gonna have to do stuff you don't wanna do. And one of the biggest things too is I had to learn how to design on Figma. Uh, because I had all these ideas for the product and then my, my co-founder really just didn't really understand it. So we'd spend like days going back and forth in terms of revision where I just literally spent every night for three months just learning how to design on Figma. Now I could literally design it in five minutes to center over the team and the, the actual like changes done within minutes. Brilliant. And I love the fact that you're always learning and not afraid to keep learning and testing yourselves and and keep pivoting and changing. I think that's phenomenal. And it goes to attest to all the things you just shared. So uh, amazing learning. Uh, the last question I'm going to uh, or kind of drive into here is you, you talk about a co-founder. Is, is this crucial to this business and to any business you build in the future? Will you always have a co-founder? Uh, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. I think for this one, for sure. Um, definitely would not be anywhere close to where we are without him. Uh, but he's been a friend and he's one of the smartest people I know. So it was a no brainer, but in general, like potentially I can start a clothing line in the future. Maybe I just want to do that. So like, I really don't know. I think, um, I'm not like a cookie cutter entrepreneur in terms of, I need to build a SaaS business. I need to build a marketplace. Like if I want to open up a coffee shop, I may do that. And like, I, I really don't know who I'll need at that point in time. But I think right now, yeah, I would not be able to do this alone. And I think for the most part, it's not only just the building aspect, I can't code and I actually can't build the product itself, but it's really having that emotional partner. Um, you know, I have my partner and he has his partner, but really at the end of the day, like, you really don't get it unless you're in the middle of it. So be able to like, uh, just kind of let off some of the stress and tell each other what's going wrong, how they're seeing the world and kind of making each other more comfortable. I think that's really kind of a core part of being, having a really great founder relationship. And if you don't have it sometimes, it may just ruin the business because Two founders can get, in, I've seen it before. It's like two founders really get in like, you know, heated battles. They try to screw each other over, but really making sure you have a really great relationship in the middle uh, is really important to every business. I love it. I love it. There, there's investors out there that will, won't invest in a company unless they have co-founders. So yeah. there, there is a true model that does fit along uh, with this. And, and I do think it makes a big difference and two brains can do more than one. So I think that there's a lot of, lot of opportunity to see there. So, well, maybe we'll have to, catch up in a couple of years on this topic because exactly. um, I think it's, it is pretty massive and I think it's gotta be pretty helpful when you're building out a startup for sure. Yep. It's uh, 
again, it's like usually, yeah, two brains are better than one and two brains with skin in the game at the same time and passion for the same, the same problem always helps. Agreed. Awesome. Well, we're going to kind of transition a little bit now into uh, this kind of heartfelt, emotional question that's kind of based around, you know, through all the experiences you've gone through and man, you've gone through lots, which is super exciting. Is there one story that really kind of stands out to you that uh, really made a difference or something that just blew you away on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and maybe she or he just you invested in or heard of or worked with and it just was amazing to hear and see like, man, these guys weren't going to make it and they just totally pulled this off and, you know, they're crushing it or whatever the story is, but just something that really proves what it takes to be an entrepreneur. I think notions. It's just like I, I read it and like it just blew me away. It's like something we tailor like our business around and um, they – they, how they started off, I can kind of take a step back. How they started off, they wanted to build a no code solution for, you know, general individuals who don't know how to code. And they realized that wasn't working. They were building it. And they took, I think the last $200,000 moved to the cheapest place they could go, then the co-founder and literally day and night, they became the number one Figma user and the entire platform early on. And they were just coding and designing, coding and designing, coding and designing. Then they took money from their parents. Like imagine all that you raised Million, you made a couple million dollars from investors. You go to your parents, ask for more money, and you're sitting in your underwear designing and coding day and night. And like that's a lot of courage. And then on top of that, too, once you start turning that corner, you're still like, I don't need more money. It's just, it's risk upon risk upon risk. And they kept succeeding because they built a beautiful product and they listened to individuals and they were very, went back to, I think one of the great things is they looked at history of the internet, they looked at history of technology. And really, what are the core fundamentals of that culture in like the 1960s and 70s? They took that ethos and put it into their product and built it into a giant. And literally, they're one of the most prominent companies today. And I think they're only like 70 or 80 employees. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a pretty good story. And I like the fact that they, they didn't give up. They just kind of kept tackling it and, and balanced out the cost and balanced out the effort to ensure they were building forward. And that's amazing. Yeah, I think one of the big things is, unfortunately, we're in a society that really focuses on the end result all the time. It's always about the end result. How much money did you make? How much money did you do this? Like, How many employees do you have? But entrepreneurship is not about the end result. It's about the journey. When you die, you don't give a shit that you listed on the TSX or the NASDAQ. What you care about, it's like, wow, I've hung out with all these three people. We're like working in our living room for like days. Like, and we finally made it and we built this like next thing. And then we went there and we went to this meeting where we were working with this billion dollar company, had no idea we could pull it off. We pulled it off. Like, that's what matters. That's why you start companies and that's why you build. It's for those adventures and it's for the knowledge and it's for the memories. Everything else is a bonus. And I think if you can take that mentality and that, like, that's why I think Silicon Valley is so successful. You, you see kids who are like literally like, you know, five to seven years old, stereotypically across North America, you'd have Michael Jordan up there. You'd have like, you know, Back to the Future, Michael J. Fox. In Silicon Valley, it was Steve Jobs. It was Mark Benioff. And what they really taught is like, just go for it. Just try it. Because you're going to be way further ahead than everyone else because you learned really on steroids. And I think if we can start bringing that back to like, you know, Canada, where it's like, I think there is a lot of a community just where like they look down upon others that they fail. It's like, that's ridiculous because literally probably 1% of people actually go for it. And when they go for it, you just have to back them as hard as possible because they're the backbone of Canada, of the U S like entrepreneurship is everything. So. Well said, 
I love it and totally agree with all of that. And, and it, it really is uh, uh, being a cheerleader for uh, early stage risk and people that do start companies. I, I think, again, 100%, it's just put your foot forward, go for it. Uh, risk is, is tough to manage, but at the end of the day, you're going to love it. You're going to love the feeling of it. It's up to you. It's your domain. You, the only way to succeed is how you keep pivoting. And, and I love, uh, well, I love the line because I uh, use it all the time on, on startup founders and everybody else, but I use it on myself too, is whatever I don't do today, I fail tomorrow. So uh, I live the same line that you said that you have to, which is I got to put myself into a little stream of where I've got movement. Because if I put myself into too much openness, maybe I get careless or maybe I don't think the same way and all of a sudden it's too easy and then I become uh, careless on how I spend or how I operate. So if you operate on this fine line, you're always going to be pushing yourself to get a little bit further on that line. And that's what's going to allow you to feel more comfort, but also drives you and everybody works a little different. So you got to figure out what your personality is and and use that to your upside. Exactly. And I think it's it, uh, everyone has their own path in life, their own vision for what they want to do. But at the end of the day, it's like, don't be scared to fail. Um, you're going to fail a lot in life and life's going to get harder and harder. Uh, you might as well just go to the ventures when you can. And, um, you know, if you have the ability and luxury to do it, go for it. Cause it'll be probably one of the hardest things you ever do. Uh, but also at the same time, one of the most invigorating things you ever do in your life. I love it. And if you fail, get back on the horse and ride again, man, you can do it again tomorrow and start all over. Somebody exactly. will want to invest in you because you brought the experience, knowledge, and understanding of what it takes to be a founder. Oh, yeah, I've heard so many founders. I think it's like the, it was, a, I heard a while ago, it was like, we don't invest, when you invest in founder the first time, you're really investing for the opportunity to invest on in the third time. And that's it. It's just like, I'll back you, I'll back you on this one. And probably the third time you're going to hit a home run. Uh, but I'm just going to keep backing you until then. Yep. I love it. Completely agree with that. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, all right, we're going to jump into rapid fire questions now. So it's one or the other. Sure. Ready to roll? Yeah. All right. From the investment side, will you invest in a founder or co-founder? Co-founder. Unicorn or four-year 10 exit? Four-year 10x. Actually, no, unicorn. Unicorn. All right. Uh, tech or CPG? Tech. Brand or tech? Tech. AI or blockchain? AI. First time founder or second or third time founder? Ooh, first time founder. First money in or series A? First money in. Angel or VC? Angel. And you've got experience on both sides. So you, that's, that's cool. I like that. Uh, board seat or observer? Board seat. Safe or convertible note? Safe. Lead or follow? Lead. Equity or interest payments? Equity. Favorite part of investing? Meeting founders and their brilliant ideas and their vision for the world and the future. I love it. Number of companies invested per year? Uh, four to five. Preferred terms? Just typically say post money cap, keep it simple. Okay. Any verticals? Not, not in general. Anything piques my interest. Okay. Two things that make a, sta- a startup stand out in your eyes. Amazing founders and ability to just like listen. I love it. Okay. Uh, the last book you read 
or not the last book you read, sorry. What is a book that you would recommend that you need to read? Uh, that's a good one. Everyone says the hard things about hard things, which is a good one too. But uh, one of the books I like is Creativity Inc. So I would say that one. It's Creativity Inc.? Yeah. I read that one. Love it. Okay. Now we're going a little bit more onto the personal side. So book or movie? Movie. Superman or Batman? Batman. Pizza pop or ice cream bar? Pizza pop. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Oprah. Yeah, I love it. I'd like to sit down with her too. I think she's a brilliant marketer. Uh, Arsenal or Manchester United? Manchester. Terrible. I've only met one Arsenal fan. This isn't good. All right. Bike or rollerblades? Bike. Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets? Big Mac. Trophy or money? Trophy. Beer or wine? Wine. Alarm clock or mobile phone? Mobile phone. Hotel, hotel or hostel? Hotel. King or rich? Neither. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've never had anybody not pick an answer, but I like it. All right. It's good. It's good. Concert or amusement park? Amusement park. Fortune cookie or birthday cake? Birthday cake. Has life been boring without Trump? No. Life's never boring. <laughs> All right. Uh, favorite sports team? Uh, Ottawa Senators. Oh, you still go back to Ottawa. All right. Yeah. All right. Favorite movie? And what character would you play in the movie? Uh, I would say... Um, probably Shawshank Redemption is probably the one and uh, I'd probably play the bird so I can be kind of in the air on the wall I'm not going to have to go through all the misery they go through <laughs> just watch the whole story unfold I love it okay this is something that's quite interesting and I, I will have to unbreak all this data at some point but I will say that of all the interviews that I have done with this question at least 10% have picked Shawshank Redemption as their favorite movie. That's crazy. It's a good movie. The, it's a very good it's movie. It's the only movie that has been picked more than once in, oh, maybe there's been a couple of Star Wars, but everybody has, like a lot of people have picked Shawshank Redemption. I actually have it loaded up to watch again. I love the movie. I'm going to watch it again, but I find it amazing <laughs> that, that, that so many people love this movie. It's incredible. It's a, it's a lovely story. So uh, I, It I, is. I don't, I, I know why. I know why. You can share why if you want. I think at the end of the day, it's like the underdog story. When everything's at your back, everything's going wrong, there's still an opportunity to live a simple and good life. And you can always rebound from all of it. Yep, agreed. There's always a way out. You just kind of figure it out, put your head down, and uh, make it happen. Exactly. I love it. First brand that pops into your mind? Supreme. All right. Most famous person that pops in your mind? Uh, Jeff Bezos, because you just said it. Damn it! I'm going to have to change those questions around. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. All right, last question. Last question. And these were all great, so thank you. What is your superpower? I think get along with pretty much anyone. I think from growing up skateboarding 
um, you know, and all over North America and weird places, back alleyways to like growing up with engineers and politicians working with tech executives. Like, I think I can really generally have a good time with anyone and just like see kind of like, you know, life is short. So just enjoy the people's company. But I think that's about it. Mark, that's been phenomenal talking with you. And I love your answers on everything. Thank you very much for being super open and sharing uh, basically your entire journey that you've gone through from startups to business, big business, to scaling, to venture, to angels. Absolutely awesome. Uh, I can see how you are and why you are today where you're at. And I'm excited to see this new business that you've got uh, ready to launch. But phenomenal. Again, I appreciate all your time today. Uh, exciting and, and again, awesome answers, man. Um, and, and the way we kind of like to end things is that I want to give you the last word. So uh, anything you want to share to the audience, uh, investors and startups, I, I turn it over to you. But again, thank you very much for all your time. I think um, if you want to build a business, go for it. You got nothing to lose. And it's just, if I can get to this point, anyone can, and you've seen a lot of people do it, but just go for it. You'll never regret it. I love it. Go for it. That should be our new tagline. Go for it. <laughs> yep, I agree, Mark. That's, uh, that's phenomenal. Again, thank you very much for that. Thank you for sharing. Thanks, Jeff. Okay, that was awesome. Mark Dillon was fantastic. I just, again, love the answers, love the learning, um, what he did on scaling, uh, the three points that he made, certainly about um, that he's working with a co-founder and being able to build the business, but not taking too much money and figuring out how to position the business. That was key, but also going out and selling before you even built the company, even more exciting. So all of those little things all make a big difference in starting your business. And of course, when you go right into it uh, from the investor standpoint, you know, from a VC to angel side, just like you said, it's easier to come in from an angel side where you're able to help and work with these founders because they understand where you're coming from. VC side, they bring a lot to the table, but you got to kind of vet through what and how they're going to bring the stuff that you need into your business. Uh, but again, these are all little pieces that kind of help you grow and, and build your business. So fantastic uh, conversation. And uh, again, thank you very much for all your time. It was uh, uh, great learning, great learning. So thank you everyone for joining us today. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on Spotify, Apple, or Stitcher. Uh, you can also check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit opn.ninja. Thank you and have a great week.